Welcome to the Exhibit A podcast. We are on. Excellent. <laughs> Today we have Philante Riddle, my good friend. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, welcome to Exhibit A. Um, so you and I have known each other for quite a while now. I was introduced to you through my wife, Maria. Uh, she was part of the Women's City Club, and you were in there. And I think that within a, uh, a couple of meetings, you and I bonded very quickly. <laughs> wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because of the fact that, you know, I'm a former police officer, and you uh, are a retired uh, police lieutenant. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is is that we started our law enforcement careers almost at the exact same time. Yes. You in uh, Pasadena, me in Santa Ana. We didn't know each other through our careers, but uh, certainly, like any other police officer, friendship. I mean, cops just bond and they know each other, and there's police talk, and it's just it's just really warm, uh, you know, having you as a friend. And I'm and I thank you very much for joining us today. Excellent. Today we're going to talk about a very important topic, and that is uh, domestic violence or domestic disturbance calls. And I thought that it would be really uh, interesting for people to know what it, it looks like in the eyes of a police officer. Uh, you and I know what it looks like, and I think that the public and a lot of my clients probably need to know what's going on through the eyes of law enforcement if they're faced with these type of situations. But before we get into the topic, let me talk about you, okay? <laughs> I love talking about you. I think you're one of the most interesting people that I know. Thank you. Uh, you come from a great family. Your husband, Eddie, is a fascinating man, and uh, I just love hanging out with you guys. Um, you, again, were a police officer for 29 and a half years, yeah, and, you just, reti- mm-hmm. and you retired from uh, Pasadena PD. You were a lieutenant on yes. the department, <clears throat> and your last assignment was? Adjutant to the police chief. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I knew that, but I think it's, it was really cool because you were essentially the media person. I mean, if there were things that were going on that, the, that called for newsworthy uh, speakers, you would get up there in front of the, the public and, and talk on behalf of the department a lot of times. Right. I was the public information officer in addition to that assignment. Yes. Yeah. And, and besides that, you commanded a lot of different units while you were uh, a lieutenant. Which ones were you in charge of? Well, uh, I was over patrol, so I was actually a service area commander. And then I was also responsible um, at a different time in my career for the motorcycle officer. So for four years, everything you saw with motors or re- re- reconstruction of uh, collisions, I was up in the helicopter, you know, wow. inbound and outbound traffic for the, all the Rose Bowl games and such. So a lot of different assignments, community relations. I absolutely love working with the youth, so PAL. Um, which is our outreach to the youth programs. And so it was an amazing career. I don't think there's anything that I didn't do in the police department on my nearly 29 years of service because with an agency about 340 uh, sworn, and you you pretty a much lot, do everything. There's a lot every, of people. Oh, there's I, a lot was, of people, yeah. but when you have LAPD to the south with 10,000 yeah. and then the sheriffs all around you with their 10,000, you don't look so big, but we're large for San Gabriel Valley. Yeah, well, actually, that's about the same size as, if I call San Ana PD. That's a pretty big department. Yes. <clears throat> now, I know you've done all these different assignments. The one that I, I want to ask you is about the motor assignment. Were you a yes. motor cop at any time? I, you know what's interesting is no, and I never had any interest in being a, what you call a motor cop. However, once I was a lieutenant, um, the chief personally asked me to take over the motor unit. And I thought, what did I do wrong? <laughs> <laughs> but it ended up being my my most my favorite assignment and the motor officers are some of the most detailed 
creative, if you think about it, creative, but also some of the most talented individuals. I have to say men because we only have men on our on our on our department for motors, but they go back out there and can recreate a collision from start to finish. Speed. <clears throat> they can determine who's at fault. Um, they can literally, from a fatal, go back from days ahead and determine a person's life and what they were doing, almost as if you were doing a homicide investigation. So it's a very um, specialized unit. Um, they probably wouldn't have liked me to say it. I used to tell them it's okay to be my prima donnas, but they couldn't act like prima donnas. <laughs> <laughs> but they're very elite. <laughs> I agree. I always thought that they were kind of people that knew physics and they, they, they understood do. a lot. And they, it's advanced schooling to, to be one of those Major of- schooling. Um, you have to be superior in math. Yeah. yeah. So, which which a lot of cops aren't. But uh, so, after your long and uh, very distinguished career in the department, you went and continued your education, and you earned a PhD. And I just learned before we started uh, rolling here today that it was in psychology. So yes. you've got a, you've got a PhD in psychology. Yes, it's called a PsyD. But yes, and so I'm Doctor Riddle. Yes, yes, and uh, that's right. When I introduced you, I should have said that, Doctor. But if you don't mind, I'm going to continue calling you Flante. I appreciate that. So, Dr. Riddle, or Flante, you uh, you also started a consulting business when yes. you left the department, and you're very active in the community. You and I serve on the Foothill Unity Center uh, board, and I know that you're just involved in everything. And one of the things that's fascinating is that not because of you grew up in the Pasadena area, you know like everybody and everything here. So, uh, it's really fun knowing <laughs> you, because if I ever needed like a history lesson about the city, I'd just go to you. Most importantly, you're the mother of three boys, yes. grown grown boys, and now you have two grandchildren and one on the way. Yes, three daughter-in-laws and almost three grandchildren. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> well, I, the thing that I'm going to ask you is, is way back in 1984, mm. did you think that your life would blossom the way that it has? No. As a matter of fact, I um, was very surprised when I started. I just wanted to help people. I know that sounds a little corny, but... I just thought this is where I live, and I would really, really like to help my community. And never thought about promotions, never thought past being involved with nonprofits. I didn't really know what they did. Uh, Very naive in in a lot of ways. But I will share with you that as I started going through the organization and realized that I became a resource very quickly because people did know me. They knew my mother, you know, obviously no cell phones and things like that. But my mother had no quorum whatsoever with calling me after a long day's work, telling me about one of her friends or one of their kids and how I could help them and somebody was, you know, in trouble. And so it just evolved. And my father-in-law, as you know, was the first African-American police officer here in the city of Pasadena, 1946 to 74, distinguished career. And so that sort of came my way also. (laughs) So... um, did I know that I was going to evolve into all this? Absolutely not, but I'm very grateful. Yeah, yeah, and I like how you started it by saying that you started police work by with the idea that you wanted to help people yes. and serve the community. And wouldn't you agree that probably 99% of the officers have that in their heart? They have good-hearted people, and you know that's really what they what they serve for. It's it's because they think that they're making a difference. And they want to help people. Yeah, that yeah. is the heart that you come with, and I will I will tell you because you and I know a lot of police officers, not just in our own agencies, but it is a very for as many officers as there are across the state of California, across this country, it's a very tight community, 
And most people, you're right, 99% want to come out here and make a difference to be helpful. And then life happens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so well, let's get into our topic. And I'm calling this uh, today the how the police respond to domestic disturbance calls. And I'm particularly calling it disturbance calls rather than domestic violence calls, because as you as you and I know that the police respond to a lot of calls where there's arguing and there's some commotion going on, but it doesn't really amount to what we consider domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Cops go to all kinds of calls, and uh, you, they never know what they're, what's behind that door when they knock on it. So let's start off first about uh, domestic violence uh, or domestic disturbance calls in your career. Mm-hmm. You started in about 1984. Correct. Right. And uh, they handled things differently in 84 than they did when you retired. And maybe you could talk about what it used to be like in the good old days, you know, or the bad old days, probably. Yeah, <laughs> we'll probably call it the bad old days. And I'll share that when I initially came on, just like you were an FTO, field training officer, you're taught how to respond to what we called 415, which is, you know, 415 families, 415 fights, those kind of things. And that's a penal code, which all it is is a disturbance. And what kind of disturbance? And you build the evidence or the, the elements as you're there. And so if you don't see it and stop on your own, the dispatcher gets a phone call and gives you information, but that information is very limited. And so when we started, you and I started in police work, you were pretty much, de- unless someone had significant injuries you, and they were married or they were cohabitating, we would just tell them, hey, to the to the man, always the man, Leave the house, go to your mother's, go, find a go, hotel room. go get a hotel room, but you got to leave here. Don't come back. Yeah. And that was pretty much the extent, unless it was something severe, of our involvement. Um, and as we evolved through the years, the state literally took that decision out of the law enforcement hands of that flexibility. And that came by primarily the trigger was the O.J. Simpson case yeah. um, because officers had been called to the home many times for disturbances. Regardless of, you know, what had was going on, it was a family disturbance, and you just didn't get involved. We, The words were, we weren't your referee. We weren't going to make the decision. Or, or how about this? It's a civil matter. Yeah, it is. It's, it's between you guys. Yeah. And in, in 92, 93, the law changed, 92, I believe it was, for what's called Penal Code 273.5, which basically said you shall. So in policy, you know, shall means you have no flexibility. And so you shall, if, there, if there's injuries, if you can see that one, and I'm not going to put it all on women who are victims, sometimes men are victims, which was quite yeah. shocking to me in my young career, <laughs> that sometimes um, men are victims also, and you will make an arrest. You know, you will get an emergency protective order. You will do a stay away. You will protect whichever party is the victim. You will ensure that those children are protected. So officers no longer get to be, if you will, the referee and say, you go your way, you go your way. If there's any form of injury or or threats, threats also. So people have to be careful about what they say. Yeah. So going back to pre OJ Simpson, um, I remember uh, just like you, you know, that we were specifically trained in the yes. academy and by our field training officers that this is a civil matter. I had one incident back when I was a cop in the suburbs of Chicago where uh, this lady was uh, repeatedly calling the police, and when I responded, she had a big uh, injury to her eye and I chose to arrest the guy mm-hmm. and I got heck from my uh, 
watch commander yeah. telling me that, you know, I had no business, you know, uh, doing that and all this other stuff. Well, you know, the guy was uh, ended up prosecuted. And I just remember that being one of my favorite uh, things that I did mm-hmm. as a police officer was protecting somebody. So, you know, it was actually hard to even bring people to justice back then because yeah. that's that's what the attitude was. Well, the district attorneys wouldn't file. Yeah, that's they, right. They wouldn't. They would say, why yeah. are you getting in the middle of a family? Dist- yeah. They wouldn't even touch the cases for the most part. And so you were left, even in your situation, unless you had a city prosecutor or if it was a felony, you know, the, the, the injuries were egregious. You had a hard time convincing the DA. Yeah, yeah. And then, then I remember there was this movement of giving victims pamphlets. Yes. Their, their rights. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't arrest anybody, but you would let the victim know that they had rights. Yeah. And then, it, like you said, it, the, the big national cases started coming up, OJ being the biggest one. Mm-hmm. There was in the 80s, there was the burning bed. You remember I seeing remember. that movie on TV? I didn't watch yeah. it, but I know about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was a big one. And then, of course, uh, recently we were reminded about Lorraine Bobbitt. Yes. You know, <laughs> I remember you know some names. of these cases. But the, but the movement started changing. And then before you knew it, the, the penal code and the family code started changing. Mm-hmm. Special units were, were created. I know that in L.A. here in the DA's office, uh, there was a special domestic violence unit that was created. Right. You probably were very familiar with that when you were a police officer. I w- and Pasadena has one now. They have a domestic violence response team and a sexual assault response team. Yeah. And where they come out and they're the advocates for the victims. And they walk them through, I mean, literally from beginning to end to ensure that they get the support. That would never have been done in the 80s, 80s and 90s. No. no, in fact, what I think that it was like a horrible assignment to be assigned to handling domestic violence yeah. cases. You know, it would be like, you know, the you weren't moving in your career if they were assigning you to that. And then it changed. It was mm-hmm. like it was, it was, you know, a great thing to be part of and stuff. So, good. We've seen the changes. The uh, pendulum has swung in a different direction. Um, I think that from a now a, an attorney's point of view, and I, you know, I see people uh, in these situations a lot of times. That it's a little scary to think that the cops are more prone to place somebody in arrest now than not, uh, you know. And, and and so folks, I think have gotten that message. You know, cops come out there. There's a good likelihood somebody's going to be in handcuffs and be brought away. Right. You know, and uh, so things have changed. But the fact of the matter is, domestic violence still. Exists, it's, right? it's still one of the driving factors for uh, police calls. It's still one of the most violent or most dangerous calls for police officers. Traffic stops are, is the dangerous. And then second to that is a family disturbance yeah. because you're dealing with all those emotions. Yeah. And you're coming in, perhaps the, the, the I'll use the, the lady as the victim. Maybe she's been, you know, smacked, maybe even punched. Her children have been threatened. And yet you go to arrest her her husband or that spouse in that house, she'll turn on you or they'll turn on each, They'll both turn on you. And so you have to be extremely careful. That's why, you know, police shows, which I'm not fond of, but you'll see them a lot of times when they, when they're interviewing, they'll take separate them. But we used to just do back to back officers would be back to back so we could keep an eye on both of them. But what you did is you had them fighting over your shoulder. <laughs> Somebody, my, my height, five, six, like, you know, the guy just right over my shoulder. So we started separating them, but being still being able to respond to help each other because they become, they're agitated. They're at a hyper uh, vigilant state. 
And so you don't have control. And any officer that walks into one of those situations knows that. Yeah. So you might find this interesting is, is when I was a police officer in the suburbs of Chicago, it was a small town, the town that I grew up in, which was Glendale Heights. I came out to California, and then I found myself in the middle of Santa Ana. Mm. And uh, domestic disturbance calls were treated completely differently. In Chicago, or the suburbs of Chicago, we went red lights and siren to these okay. calls. In, in Santa Ana, a lot of times, we'd respond hours after the call because we had other things to do, like murders and rapes and robberies and stuff. So it really depends on the agency and the, and the community as far as uh, how quick the response is going to be. In Pasadena, how would you uh, characterize, like, the police response to calls in for domestic disturbances? Well, and, and it's not just Pasadena anymore, but I'll, I'll drill down to Pasadena. It's set by policy now. As I said before, a lot changed in the 90s. And and definitely now um, policy dictates everything um, mm. because we've made some major mistakes, not by being derelict in our duties, but just not knowing, like you said, where are your priorities? Is it do you respond to the assault, the rape, the rob, the armed robbery? You know, the fight on the street, or do you respond to the the family disturbance? Where does that fall? And so, a lot has to do with what information the dispatcher is given. So is it a next-door neighbor who's calling that says, hey, you know, they're fighting again? Or is it the child on the phone saying, oh, my God, my daddy's strangling my mom? That is where the priority will come in on how those officers will respond, basically, because the officer doesn't know if it's just a verbal or if there's, you know, something physical going on unless they're given the correct information. And when they get to the call, you know, people are always, as I said, hypervigilant. So they're angry. And so someone says, you should have been here already. You know, look at her. She she got beat up. I'll just tell you a quick story. I responded to a domestic violence where the neighbors called. And I go into the home. There's three, four generations there. Literally, you know, the grandma's holding the little baby and the the husband's there. There's cousins in the house. It's a it's it's a large community of family. And I asked to to see where's the wife because I was told that she had been strangled and died. Now I don't know who in the house called, but someone called, but no one's, you know, mm-hmm. saying because they know it's not the right thing to do in their culture. The, you don't put your business outside. And so I go into this bedroom, and finally, and the next thing I know, I'm looking at this woman, and she is bloodied. Her nose looks broken. Her eye is swollen. She has bruises all over her arms. I can see blood spatter on the wall where she's been punched, and you can see her face must have gone to the side and the spatter on the wall. And I immediately called for a code three. I said, I need a code three back. Because I knew someone in that house was going to jail. And her husband is literally in speaking in another language. But you could tell, telling her to shut up, not say anything. Right. The mother is there telling her, say, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. So she wasn't, she wasn't getting any um, support. So I wanted to walk her out of the house. I called paramedics. And they were literally barring the door. You're not taking her anyway. Oh, my God. This no. is a family. We will handle ourselves. The dad was saying, I'll deal with my son. It was ugly. And so I ended up having to get, like, two additional cars there just to get him into custody, which was uh, we had to hold a family back, and to get her to the hospital. Do you know she wouldn't file? 
the state had to file on her behalf. It's interesting that you're saying that because that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the recanting victim. Yes. It was it seemed like in my career that it was more common in the 90s than it is now as a family law attorney. Maybe it's because I'm not doing criminal uh, prosecution anymore right. or, or whatnot. But that was a very, very common thing, especially with um, families with, with longstanding traditions mm-hmm. that we keep it in the house and everything. Right. Yeah, so that that kind of segues, I think, that, that story is very powerful, by the way. I mean, it's very, you could just visualize that. Uh, uh, the investigation phase. So, mm-hmm. you know, you get into a scene like that. So I think that the, the viewers should know, first and foremost, the officer's thinking about his or her safety, right? Well, and they he, have to because yeah. they know the very victim you're trying to help is the one that's going to jump on your back. Yeah, yeah, and you never know when you're walking into a home, you know, what awaits you and stuff like that. So when the, when the cops aren't, like, when they're coming in in droves, three and four officers at a time, and they're not, they don't have big uh, smiley faces, there's a reason for that is because they're thinking about going home, you know, when, when their They've shift is done. They've experienced it already. Yeah. They know. Yeah. And so, so the investigation starts, and um, I, I think that this, that is a great segue, talking about the recanting victim, because that's something that we all know can happen. And like you said, it's not the victim's decision, it's the state's decision now as to it whether is. to prosecute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it different before? Oh, yes. Oh, before, I didn't know that. Vic, this is why officers sort of took a step back, too, because you would do all this investigation, write these reports, which sometimes took you way over your time, your what we call EOW, end of watch. And yet you go to court and the victim refused. Yeah, she wouldn't, wouldn't show talk, up, right? Wouldn't show up. Wouldn't, yeah. You couldn't reach them. You go to the house, they won't answer the door. So that was a problem. And I'll have to say that's one of the best things that happened in the legislature from the state side is that victims now, the state advocates on behalf of the victim, so there's no recanting. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to to us about the process of an investigation. What When you were working as the uh, lieutenant in charge of patrol, what would your people be expected to do when, upon arrival for these things right. as an investigator? Well, so initially... When I was there as on um, patrol or even as a detective, um, you get the case the next day. But that, that field officer, that patrol officer, is the key because he's coming or she's coming to the scene while it's fresh, while the emotions are high, while people are telling you what's really going on. The neighbors are absolutely furious that they're being woken up again, especially if you're in an apartment. And so you get all that detailed information, and you have to obviously write your report, and then you send it to detectives, and then the detectives do the follow-up on it. That's what a lot of people don't don't know, is that the field officer never does the extenuating um, or the additional follow-up. That goes to a detective. Which is really important to the investigation. It's, it's critical yeah. because they have the time. The officer has another case to go to. Yeah. You know, he's got another call from the dispatcher. He, his lieutenant is telling or, or him or her what they need to go and do to, to follow up on something else. So they're the initial, you know, holder of the, of the first report, the first responder. But that detective is the critical piece because he finds or she finds out what's happened in the past. They build a case. And in building that case, they tell a story of that relationship and how fractured it is, how the children are, if they're children in the home, how they're impacted, how the neighbors are impacted. The, the, they can pull the reports from, from other cases or other responses, and they can see if the woman or the male has gone to hospital. And I have to keep reminding you, there are male victims out there. They don't report as much. 
just like sexual assault, yeah. but they're there. Yeah, I know that because yeah. I, I represent some of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I've been taken aback on some pretty <laughs> – I'm like, she did that to you? Ouch. <laughs> well, I have to say that the number of times that I go into court now representing people for domestic abuse – uh, at least fifty percent of them are male victims now. Wow! Yeah, that's, so that's men are reason. learning to pick up the phone and call the cops just but, as much as women are. Yeah, I think. stop yeah. being embarrassed. Yeah. you know yeah. it happens. Yeah, and and it's good because you know it, it just need everybody needs to know. You know, there's rules that, that right. So so going back to the investigation, I, I'm thinking about when I was out there. You know, the one thing you want to do is get the statements of the yeah. parties. Very. You important. want to take photographs, look for injuries, uh, and photographs two days after because the bruising is. Yes, you can see bruising around the neck, but two to three days later, it's it's bright red or purple, you know, your yellow and, and green that look. Yeah. It's horrible. And so you always have to go back two to three days later. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I that I think that a lot of people should know is that, you know, when the cops come, they're ready to do a real investigation. And that's going to require a detective later on speaking to them and mm-hmm. looking at that. So it's a lot more professional than it ever has been from what I can see. Um, with regard to the uh, education of the public, I, that's why I think that things like this show right here is important for people to understand that the problems still exist and the police are still going to do what they're going to do. And hopefully, you know, we'll never get rid of this type of a societal ill, but hopefully, you know, we'll be able to put a dent in it, you know, by having people educated and know that there's consequences. Um but I want to talk to you, just kind of move over to the, the topic of what domestic abuse and violence does to society. It's a societal ill. It is. You know, and, and uh, you know, you had talked a little bit about, you know, the kids being involved, you mm-hmm. know, and seeing that and some of the things that it leads to. Can you talk to us about that? Right. And so, un- unfortunately, when you have a parent, I saw a video and it, it was horrifying that this father was basically berating the mother, pushing her. He, he wasn't a closed fist, but slapping her. And he was talking about how stupid she was. And her two children was they were there. One was a 12-year-old daughter, and the other one was a 9-year-old son. And what you saw in the progression of this video was that the son was, man, Mom, this is your fault. He started, they were both, if you would just do what Daddy says, you wouldn't get this if you weren't stupid. This is a nine-year-old boy wow. telling his mother, talking to yeah. his, and she is, you could just tell she was broken. It was, it was like she was victimized all over again. And the girl was saying, Mom, why don't you just make sure that everything is right when Dad gets home? And, then he, and I saw that, and I thought, this is, this is what ends up happening. What do you think this little girl is going to go out and look for? She's not going to go out and look for a guy that's great like Don. She's going to go look at I mean, quite frankly, she is going to find herself with someone like her father. This little boy is going to be exactly what his dad is because that's what a man does. Yeah. Because that's his, only, that's his only picture into the real world. And so I just felt like those children, they were eventually taken out of the home. And the mother got away from him, but the damage was done. Yeah, you, you talked about something that's really important, and that is as if mom doesn't protect those children, then the children could be taken away from the home right. because, because the Department of Children and Family Services get involved as well. Someone sent that video because the dad was videotaping it. He was, wow. and, and that video got in the hands of the right people, and they removed those children and her from that home. Yeah. So, I mean, domestic violence also, you know, it causes the breakup of families, uh, dysfunction in families. 
It also it could escalate to mm. some very serious things, mm. you know, like murder, you know, yeah. and, and things things of that nature. I uh, I think that people should be aware of the fact that uh, a heated argument could get out of control, and you know, a, a perfectly reasonable person might be doing something that he or she regrets later on because of you know what goes on in the heated moment. Well, you remember the South Pasadena is just fresh, where the mother and father were in a terrible argument. She was going to leave him. He took the boy. They're supposed to be going to Disneyland. Um, the, the police department, she called the police begging them to help. They were like, okay, he has joint custody. I mean, at that particular point, they weren't divorced. There was no custody at that. He has just as much right as she does. But days later, they started questioning him about where the child was because he was not you, you couldn't produce this child. Yeah. Oh, he was with my mother. Oh, he's with my cousin. And come to find out, he murdered the child and buried him. Yeah. And yeah. it was all in retaliation for her wanting to leave him. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's that's. We talk about Doctor Riddle talk from. There's some mental issues there, but there's also just evilness there. There's that's evil. Yeah. Yeah. Oh goodness. Um. And you know we talked a little bit about. Uh, you know, the fact that there's, you know, women that commit domestic violence just like men. It's gender neutral. Um, people need to be very much aware of the fact that just because you're a woman doesn't give you a license to slap or throw things or, or anything like that. And there's also the case of people that make false claims of domestic violence yes. as well. You know, and I think that that's got to be really hard for officers, you know, because they're not, you don't know these people really well. And sometimes you're taking people for their word, mm-hmm. right? You know, that, and that's tough. And it is tough because that's where the officer's experience will come in, the questions you ask. Um, it's hard to tell a lie the same way twice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we learned that very early on in our careers. Ask, ask the person again and then have them, you know, we do some questions over the phone purposely, you know, to try to get people, because sometimes when you're face-to-face, and you'll hear it. You, you, they'll they'll tell them themselves, but what could happen, unfortunately, is that other individual could be taken into custody, and that individual will give them key points to say how they know they didn't do this, you know. Yeah. So, but it takes it takes work, and you can't just be you can't be lazy. Um, that's the one thing I say to officers all the time. This is our one hundredth and one time we responded to this. This is their first. And you have to treat them like it's their first. Yeah, yeah. You probably know a lot more than I do about domestic violence shelters. Yes. And that they exist. Uh, I mean, I, they exist here in Pasadena, San Gabriel Valley, right? Yes, yeah. there's quite a few of them, actually. Now, the, the city of Pasadena has a contract um, with uh, Peace Over Violence. And so they are very big advocates and help to ensure that the victim gets the resources they need and the information on shelters. Um, also, uh, door, not door, excuse me, Shepherd's Door. Shepherd's Door is a great uh, nonprofit here also in Pasadena. Uh, Linda O'Frey is the uh, executive over that particular. And what she's doing now is working with Flint Ridge Center, which is a nonprofit, mm-hmm. to teach men who have offended to look into the why behind it so they don't continue to repeat. And so she's doing a lot of training, which is helping to build families back up because people are recognizing that they can handle those frustrations, a job loss. 
you know, um, a, a bad situation with someone at your, at the PO's office, a, a public defender's office, or perhaps, you know, uh, confrontation with a family member. They need to learn how to handle that rage inside of them without using their fists. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, a lot of it's about power and control and trying to give back the power and stuff right. that, that took but, a war. But you have to recognize it. Yeah, yeah. So on a final note... What would you uh, advise people who are involved in volatile arguments, uh, maybe a breakup of a relationship, and they're you know they're in that scenario where it's him and her inside of a you know residence mm-hmm. is getting to the point where it's getting out of control. You know, what what advice would you give them? You know, some of our early and we were talking about the early days in the eighties. Some of that wasn't a bad necessarily a bad thing. It's okay to walk away. Yeah. It's okay to spend the night, you know, somewhere where she doesn't think you're with another woman, obviously, or vice versa with another man. But it's all right to just give yourself some space to calm down to think. Because when you're in the heat of the moment, you do say stupid things. And you have to realize that it has consequences. And when you use your fist, those are unintended consequences. Now you're going to be in custody and or or a divorce situation. So I still say walking away is the best recipe. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you because that's what I tell my uh, clients is that, you know, get out if you can. Uh, If you can't get out, if something happens, Call the police yes. first and then, you know, call it a family law mm-hmm. attorney or something. But I love your advice about it. it's still okay that to go and cool off, yeah. you know, I mean, get out of there because there's nothing like uh, trying to speak when you're, you know, inflamed like that or try to do the right thing. It's right. almost impossible sometimes. It is. It is. And, you know, get in that car and take a drive. Do something that, that gives you a little bit of distance from the immediacy of what you consider a major problem. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, that was really informative. You're awesome. That's all I could tell you. you. Like an encyclopedia for crying out loud. So I'd like to change the topic. Okay. Okay. We're going to talk about something that's a little lighter. And this is a story that I came across a couple of weeks ago. And I thought I was saving this for for Volante here. <laughs> we talked about why people fight, you know, or, you know, arguments and things of this nature. This is about a woman who filed for divorce after her husband forgot to bring a burger to her. Could you imagine that? The, the article states that a woman uh, in the United Arab Emirates uh, filed for divorce after her husband failed to pick up a burger for his for her on his way home, uh, you know, and that uh, you know she proceeded to go to divorce court, and I guess over there they got to figure out if that's enough grounds for a divorce. So, what would you have to say about this very serious topic? Well, after I get past the laugh of it, um, the top, the the title of it, you know, if you drill down, there's a lot more going on than that burger. <laughs> <laughs> you told me before, before we started rolling this, this probably wasn't the first time that he forgot to bring her a burger, right? No, it's not the first time he did a lot of things. <laughs> I'm surprised that there's burgers over there that are that important. I thought that the diet was a little different, but yeah, uh, well, you know, Americans, we've Americanized pretty much everything. Yeah, well, cool. <laughs> Well, Falante, thank you very much for taking time thank out of you. your very busy schedule. I know this morning you had things to do, and there's no doubt that when you leave here, you're on to your next <laughs> venture. Thank you. Uh, I hope to have you on again, and thank you for joining us on Exhibit A. Thank you. Thank you. Exhibit A is produced by David Lindley at the law offices of Donald P. Schweitzer in Pasadena, California. For more information, visit us online at PasadenaLawOffice.com and all social media platforms. 